very fortunate to have with us today Shalom Or am I, am I, am I pronouncing it Orzak? Okay. Who is originally from England? England. Um, Shalom is a senior educator and consultant for I for the I Center. It's not E Y E. It's I, which I assume stands for Information Center. Israel. Israel Center. Okay, fine. Um, he served as the Abichai Project Director and Director of Education uh, in the Shlichut and Israel Fellows Unit for the Jewish Agency. He has a rich background in camping, running various camps in England where he grew up, and later serving as the Education Director at Ramad Pocono's. He has served, hopefully I got the rest, oh, um, as a consultant for the Jim Joseph Foundation and the Jewish People Committee, and teaches a course in experiential education at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He was also a scholar on the prestigious Jerusalem Fellows Program, after which he served as the Executive Director of Jewish Renewal for United um, Jewish Israel Appeal. He has a strong passion for teaching, feels privileged to live in Jerusalem with his family, and loves sharing stories about life in the land um, of so much promise. So we are very lucky to have Shalom with us. Shalom, please come up, take over, and tell us about the north of Israel that we're going to go see. Thank you. Okay, um, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for coming. Um, you're, you're taking a risk, because uh, afterwards you'll know whether it was a, it was a good decision. Thank you for coming. I want, to, I want to use our time together, hopefully, to make this into a dialogue as well as a, a monologue. I will open with some remarks, but clearly if you have questions, then feel free, feel free to ask. Um, I think it is a fascinating way to look at Israel from the north. Uh, and I want to try and explain why. Uh, I think one of the dilemmas of any Israel visit is when do you begin the story, or where do you begin the story? And clearly part of the answer is there isn't the story, um, there are a whole myriad of stories. And I think part of the excitement of going to Israel at any time uh, is finding your particular story within the stories that are told. Uh, it might sometimes be related to the culture, the immigration stories, um, the vision, the values, uh, and I'm going to mention all of these things, but I want to, I want to just uh, uh, put that out there. Um, how do we tell the story of Israel? When does it begin? And where does it begin? Uh, and clearly there's no definitive answer, but I want to use the opportunity to perhaps um, share some vignettes that speak to the north of Israel that I think present a fascinating and a compelling micro to a macro. So point number one um, which I shared with Ari, when thinking about the north, uh, the north in Hebrew is Tzafon, Tzadi, Pei, Vav, Nun, and Tzafon, coincidentally or not, is also related to a word used in Hebrew for consciousness, or maybe even essence, right? It's Matzpun. So can we see in the north of Israel that from the Tzafon, can we actually imagine and grapple with the matzpun, the consciousness, the very essence of Israel? And I believe to a certain extent um, we can. Um, and perhaps we should, because very often our attention, our focus is merkaz, in the center of Israel. The concentration, the rikuz of Israel is in, is in, is in the center. Very often we oversee, or we don't really see well, um, the northern and southern aspects, like in a lot of other countries, these areas become known as peripheries, uh, which is a term you'll probably hear when you get 
to Israel, which um, sometimes becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. If someone is outside of, what does that mean? Me'ever. Right? We're outside of the action. Um, so I want to share some vignettes around places that I think you're gonna, I know you're going to visit. Um, not to take the thunder away from the places you're going to visit, but to perhaps provide a context to understanding what is it we're going to see. And what are the questions that I think are going to be paramount? And what are the larger issues that some of the small places invite us to grapple with in a way that we may not have grappled with them before? So I want to start our trip, our virtual tour, um, in a place called Svat. We're then going to go down and visit an area near the Kinneret, the Kinneret Cemetery, uh, which I want to make some comments about, again, without taking the thunder away. You need to be there. But being there and being here previous, I think will enrich um, the experiences that you'll have. So we're going to visit um, Tzvat. We're going to go down to the Kinneret. Um, we're going to go a little bit further down to Haifa. Um, if we have time, we'll shoot back up to Akko. Haifa and Akko are similar. Uh, you'll, you'll, you'll see why. Um, and I want to pay a visit, I'm not sure whether you're going to get there, but I mentioned it also to Ari, um, to an area called Tel Chai, uh, which is also in the north, and I think as a micro, uh, is doing fascinating things, uh, and also speaks to almost iconic voices or images of, of where the story of Israel poss possibly begins. So where did we say we were going to start? We're going to start in Tzvat. Tzvat is beautiful. High on the mountain, overlooking the mountain opposite is... Uh, um, is um, no? Why is it just gone? Um, where? Whatever, I'll get to it. Meron, Meron, Right, we're overlooking uh, Mount Meron. Um, what happened in Tzvat? Why do we go to visit it? Tzvat, I think, and again, I want to start here because many of these places became responses to fundamental questions. Many of these places became responses not only to fundamental questions, but very often to crises. Mashberim, we call them in Hebrew. A shever, we're torn apart. We're faced with questions that we never had to grapple with before. And how these places, and obviously the people in these places, offered their responses, still informs our Israel and Jewish story today. So what happened in Tzfat? The early settlement of Tzfat occurred shortly after the Spanish... Huh, I feel like I'm on Monty Python, but I'm not going to go there. Who expected the Spanish Inquisition? But I'm going to speak slightly about the Spanish Inquisition. Um, and other very important historic episodes that were occurring at that time, 15th, 14th <coughs> century, um, the expulsion of the Jews um, from Spain was a crisis at the time, and even now we can consider it still informing our sense of who we are and who we're not. Who's in, remember I said that earlier on, who's in and who's out. Who's considered, and unfortunately this conversation is very, very prevalent today. Right? One of the terminologies that we use way, way back before Tzfat, right? Abraham is known as an Ivri. Right? It's a play on the word Iv, 
Hebrew. Right? The word Ivri, why was he called that? Because he was perceived to be Me'ever, from the other side. Right? That's a fascinating way to describe oneself. It's also a problematic way to describe oneself. I'm always going to be either a Ger or a Toshav. Remember a few weeks ago, the debate that Abraham had when he wanted to buy a plot for Sarah, his wife? He used, again, an iconic phrase that we're constantly playing with this. Are we strangers or are we citizens? Do we belong or are we me'ever? Are we on, from the other side? Right? And who's looking and who's judging and who's making this, this kind of perception? So this, the expulsion of Jews from Spain and some of the expulsions that happened before, also from England, a couple of hundred years before then, um, caused a crisis that unfortunately we revisited in many periods of our Jewish history. We may have looked up and we may have asked the question, very, very simple, why? Lama, what's happening? How do we understand our existence in this world and our relation, huge theological questions and our relationship with God? Can there be good? Can there be evil? Why are the good punished for whatever? A debate that Abraham had, that same Me'ever, that same Ivri person had with God in one of the first, most dramatic dialogues between man and God. When God explains to Abraham that he's going to destroy the city of Storm, and Abraham again demands justice. Demands justice from his understanding of what justice needs to be. Following the expulsion of the Jews from Spain, I think we were having similar dialogues. We were asking very big theological questions. Tzfat becomes an interesting response. Two very important streams of Jewish thought are developed there. One, mysticism, the Kabbalah, which you'll see a lot of when you're there. And ironically or not, or curiously or not, also the Halakha. The rational, Rambam-like, Maimonides-like thought of why we do what we do. We do what we do because we need to do it. It's a very rational approach to the legal system of the Jewish tradition. But let's talk a little initially about Kabbalah. We're not going to talk that much about it. But I do want to mention that Kabbalah arose out of a crisis. It was a response to understand our relationship with God, God's role in the world, God's so-called involvement in the world, and it was a way of grappling and understanding and dealing with the morning after the crisis. Is there an approach we can adopt and develop to sustain our understanding of what being Jewish in the 15th, 14th, onwards centuries means. Can I still develop and embrace a relationship with God the morning after a crisis? <coughs> Berkowitz carries on that dialogue the morning after the Holocaust. Can I still have a relationship with God? And whether the Spanish, the expulsion of Jews and the Inquisition that led up to it, it wasn't that we were just kicked out. <coughs> many, many hundreds, if not thousands, thousands, uh, were killed in the Inquisition process. Right. Many more, or many, also found themselves me'ever, outside of 
hiding under uh, other identities. Right? All of these were responses to, and the people, part of them, from that part of the world that ended up in Spurt, began this tradition of Kabbalah, began this tradition of trying to provide answers to very, very difficult questions. Not answers, certainly approaches. That's one stream um, that you're going to meet when you're in Svart. Something, a stream and a, an ideology in Judaism that still speaks very profoundly. Some people would argue cynically or not. It gets people that are asking big questions. Um, and, and the kind of characters, very colorful characters, you'll meet in Svart, um, very often will relate to who is this stuff still speaking to? Who's really attracted by this approach? Right? And from Kabbalah, we could kind of argue that the Hasidic movement um, grew out of that a very spiritual, physical, I don't want to say less intellectual, but less emphasis on intellectual movement that again took over the Jewish people. Certainly in the 17th, 18th century, it was huge, which obviously prompted a response to that too, because that's the people we are. Right? The mit nabdim, those that almost went against this idea of Hasidut, also became a huge scholarly thinking uh, movement uh, within Judaism as well. We'll leave them aside, but you'll meet them here and, and certainly in Israel. So, so that is in terms of the Kabbalistic, or the, the mysticism, the mystic movement that you'll see in Sfat, uh, that is still very, very prevalent. And still in having that dialogue with how do we understand our role as Jews, as citizens of the world, uh, to others. Movement number two, which I want to speak to uh, also briefly, uh, is the Halachic movement. Yosef Cairo, whose synagogue is still there, um, developed maybe the, with a capital T, code of Jewish law, the book known as the Shulchan Aruch, which essentially codifies everything you need to know about being Jewish. Not embarrassed to ask, but maybe you don't even want to ask. Everything you want to know and don't want to know is codified in there. How we get up in the morning and how do we go to bed at night. Everything, every detail. Not that mystical, not that Hasidic, <coughs> not that romantic. It's the dry bones, it's the dry facts. Both of these movements are developed in parallel in this same place. Again, I'm going to leave Svat, but I want to leave you with the following dilemma or image to hold on to. Both of the movements are very, very different from one another. Yet, they're both happily living in the same place and are constantly in dialogue with one another. And dare I suggest... <coughs> So potentially we can see these two movements, these two dialogues, these two conversations, these two machlokot, these two debates, as a microcosm of how we live together when we have <coughs> potentially opposing views, or certainly different schools of thought. How does that work? Find some of those answers when you're in spot. I don't want to suggest them all now. But I think it, 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 as, as an opener, it presents a fascinating platform for grappling with a Talmudic term, which I think is revolutionary. The Talmudic term 
speaks to ongoing debates that occurred between, listen to the phrase here, Bet Shammai and Bet Hillel. They're not called Rabbi Shammai or Rabbi Hillel, as sometimes rabbis are called today. They're called the houses of, because both developed houses slash schools of thought. Very, very different from one another, and very often a beautiful phrase that's used to summarize their disagreements is that potentially, I'm going to say it in Hebrew and then in English, Shnehem divrei Elohim chayim. Both of their views are the living words of God. It's very counterintuitive way of solving debates. Wait a minute, they're both right? They're both correct? And the answer is absolutely. And I, hopefully you will hear echoes of this when you visit Svat and see not only these two streams of mysticism and, and halakha, of, you'll see other streams as well, particularly <coughs> in the Hasidic um, movements. The Braslev people are very strong there, very colourful, very musical, very energetic, <laughs> very inviting. Uh, hopefully you'll meet them. If not there, they'll, they'll crop up in other places too. Right? But try and, again, grapple with what were some of the core questions they were trying to provide answers to. What were some of the core crises, questions, dilemmas that these movements flourished as a result of, but also provided responses to people who were looking um, um, for, uh, for responses to this. So that's in terms of Tzvat. Many, many different Jewish positions, schools of thought, um, live there, and um, hopefully Kulan, if not Shnehem, all of them, if not just both of them, um, can be seen and perceived as living words of God. They can all be correct. They can all be correct. We've lost that ability, I think, in our, sometimes our political discussions, uh, both here and certainly in Israel, uh, in terms of who's right and who's wrong. Let's imagine everyone is right, and now let's go to work. Right? It's a different mindset, and I think it's a very, very important way uh, to open your trip uh, to Israel. So we're leaving Svat. We're going to drive down uh, to the Kinneret. We're going to... Um, and Kinneret opens a... Um, very different opportunity of understanding, again, where does the story of Israel or the Jewish people begin? Right? At what point, uh, and, and what was the calling um, that they heard? And I think all of these places, and, and I want to believe the people you will meet there um, ha heard a calling and stood up, were ready to be counted. And when they heard that calling, they said, Hineni, I'm here. I'm ready. I'm ready to do what needs to be done. And the Kinneret is a story, among others, a very romantic, I, I'm soft, but I, I think it's one of the, the uh, beautiful romantic stories of, um, I, I, on one hand I want to say, of Israel, of, you know, of Israel, Mipam, you know, the Israel of once, uh, and I think it still informs the Israel of today. Who were those giants? Who were the pioneers uh, that arrived in this area of the Kinneret? So in, in this place, we're, we're jumping a few hundred years, and we're speaking about a period of time um, in Israeli history that is known as the Second Aliyah. Um, a group of people um, that left predominantly Eastern Europe, <coughs> again, 
crisis-driven, pogroms, anti-Semitism, me'ever, you're outside of, and for many of these people, I'm probably singing to the choir here, but I'll mention it nonetheless, for many of these people, that time period in Eastern Europe, right, post-emancipation in Western Europe, right, things weren't that hunky-dory quite yet in Eastern Europe, but there was hope and involvement, almost out of proportion involvement of Jews in the revolutionary movements, because they too, I think, believed, and they may still have spoken this language, not necessarily religiously, but certainly culturally, of we have to make the world a better place. A desire to be involved in tikkun olam, a desire to renew our days of old, but to make sure that the way we are behaving, both to ourselves and to others, reflect core Jewish ideals. Sometimes, obviously, we're universal. Many of the people who left Eastern Europe, Russia, Ukraine, many from, from that area uh, at that time, most of them, by the way, were coming here, right, when they were leaving, probably product of it. Mm. Um, I, a few of them, really a few of them, their calling took them to another place. Maybe they were hearing in Hebrew. Maybe they were singing in Hebrew. Maybe they were speaking in Yiddish, but the place they wanted to get to was home. <coughs> their understanding of home. Everywhere we live, hopefully we make it into our home, right? But their understanding of home, and of course this was also driven by nationalism, which was then making its entry into the stage of world history, an idea that we Jews can have a national identity. I'm not going to delve too much on that. You'll have much, much more time, and maybe smarter people to delve into that with you when you're in Israel, but those, those are important footnotes um, to think about uh, when you're there, and those footnotes should then get to back to the top of the page. Um, the, the notion of nationalism and, and the, the Jewish national movement, and you'll obviously encounter other national movements uh, when you're there, which were influenced by uh, the Jewish national movement of Zionism. Um, so who are the people that you're going to meet at the Kinneret? And there's a place I'm going to take you. You don't have to close your eyes. I'm closing my eyes. Right, but you'll be going to it. It's a cemetery that really is the embodiment of that period of time, because it has... Buried there are the heroes of that period that have become really iconic leaders in the Zionist story uh, and iconic leaders in Israel till today. Many of the institutions that were established in Israel were established by the Hevrei uh, that are buried um, there in, in, in the Kinneret Cemetery. So who were those people? What was the calling that they heard? Anti-Semitism, pogroms, and again, a desire pre-state, but a nationalist movement was, was in existence, a desire to embrace and be in charge of their own destiny. And I want to, as a backdrop, although the best place to talk about this is probably in Tel Aviv that we're not going to go to, but if you get to Tel Aviv, you'll go to Bialik's house. Uh, and Bialik uh, wrote an incredible poetry, incredible writings, a, a literary giant. Um, Bialik was sent to Kishnev shortly after the pogrom in Kishinev, 1903. The eve, by the way, of the period of the Second Aliyah. The Second Aliyah period is 1904 and stopped quite abruptly by nine, uh, 1914 by the First World War, where people couldn't 
uh, people's ability to travel um, was very, very limited. Um, Bialik was already in Israel, and he was sent to Kishnev by the then Yishuv, it wasn't the Israeli government uh, yet, to find out what happened. So very often we ask younger students, um, so how many people were killed in Kishnev? What, 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 was, the, what was so alarming? Right? It was over 60. Right? Very often we use the six for, with a lot more, a lot more um, um, zeros. What was so shocking uh, about what occurred in Kishnev was when it occurred, right? Russia was about to become a better place. Right? Similar to the Dreyfus peace uh, in, in, in Western Europe, where the, the, you've got us excited. We're a people that gets excited very easily. I think we're quite emotional as well, and, and, and emotionally vulnerable. And I want to refer to that later on, uh, when I, I, I'll make some references to the peace process, or what we're prepared to do when people are beginning to embrace us, when people are opening their arms, when countries are opening their arms, finally, 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 and then closing them or pushing us out very dramatically, both in the case of Dreyfus, and I want to use the Kishner pogrom, and Bialik certainly used it in this way, as again, a, a, a moment in time that was dramatic, mainly because we didn't expect it to occur. It wasn't that there weren't pogroms occurring, but the pogroms should have stopped occurring at a time that we're speaking enlightenment and equality. Bialik goes to Kishnev and writes a poem, which is very long, but I recommend uh, read it, probably with a glass of wine, because it's not easy. It's called On the City of Slaughter. And it was probably one of the first times in modern Jewish history that when a Jew is writing about a crisis, he's blaming a different set of people. He's not blaming the Cossacks, who were carried out the most brutal of acts. He was also blaming the Jews. And he has very, very vivid images of the Jews crawling up in their cupboards underneath, coming out afterwards after their wives may have been raped or abused, going to shul to bench what we call in Yiddish, we've got to bench goimel. We've got to thank God that everything is okay. And he looks at me and he goes, really? Where were you? Where are you? Was his calling. In a poem that all Israeli children continue to learn, maybe less so than 10, 20 years ago, it was certainly something that was classic, classic, classic in Safrut, in the literature um, in Israeli education system. Think about it. Another footnote for you. How do the Jewish people develop a curriculum of education in a Jewish state? What do we need to tell our children? What do we want to tell our children? What do we want our children to be aware of? We haven't asked those questions for thousands of years in a state state reality, as opposed to a cheder, or JCC reality. It's very, very different. And again, you'll grapple with that. Footnotes will become headings. But I, I want to just leave that, leave that for you to grapple with when you're there. So the poem, Bialik's poem, looks into the eyes of those that are sort of huddled up in cupboards and under, you know, hiding, saying, you, sons of Maccabees, that's the phrase he uses. Sons of Maccabees, what are you doing? Right, we hadn't been called sons of Maccabees for a long time. Because the Maccabee has a lower voice, is very muscular, and uh, takes care of things. 
נכון? He's not the guy who hides and scrambles away, but this is the new image of the Jew that back in 1903 even we were interested in developing. Somebody who could take care of themselves and more importantly, more importantly, is in charge of their destiny. But that is the Zion's dream that you'll meet through the Hevre uh, in the Kinneret. The second Aliyah was driven by a very young spirit and a young age. Most of the people who made Aliyah, who were moving to Israel, again, predominantly from Eastern Europe at that time, but also a Yemenite Aliyah, which you'll meet them also uh, in the Kinneret Cemetery, equal but separate. Another footnote for you, where were the, the Yemenite uh, population, buried in the same cemetery, involved in very similar activities when they were, uh, when they were in Israel at that time. Right? But who tells our story? Winners tell our story. And winners write our story. And the Labour Zionist movement was the winning party, both politically and other, um, for almost the majority of Israel's history. It's changing. And we'll talk about that as well. Certainly till the, from 48 till the early 70s, it was a labor Zionist political system that ran uh, the government. Their iconic leaders, many of them, you're going to meet in the Kinneret, and many of them were the foundational heads, the founding fathers and mothers, many mothers, by the way, many mothers, many presidents in making and prime ministers in making, uh, but didn't necessarily make it, uh, but they were there, um, equal almost on all levels. That was also something very, very interesting and symbolic of that movement uh, of the Second Aliyah, um, breaking norms, both religious, I would say predominantly religious, uh, and also political. Like, if that's the way it was done, we're going to do it differently. Um, those are some of the chevre that you're going to meet in the Kinneret. People, again, who heard a calling <coughs> and responded differently. Youngsters who said, our future is not here, it has to be there. Uh, and we'll take, again, our destiny and our, our future in, in our hands. And, again, romantically, many of the kibbutz, the kibbutz movement and the moshav movement and our attachment to the land through agriculture, uh, driven by one of the, he looks like a rabbi, although he wasn't, driven by somebody called Aleph Gordon, A.D. Gordon, um, the, one of the, the key spiritual <coughs> leaders his house, you'll find, not far from the cemetery, I hope you'll visit it. They've actually just refurbished it, it's actually stunning. Um, that whole area is the iconic image of the birth of the new Jew. The birth of the Jew that was hearing in Hebrew and responding in Hebrew. The Hebrew they may have learned in the Cheder, but we're using in very, very different settings. Right? And, and responding to a calling in a, in a way that, again, was unparalleled for thousands of years in terms of a Jewish response to crisis or a Jewish response when opportunity knocks, knocks on your door. That's place number two. It will certainly set the scene uh, in, in a compelling manner for understanding Israel today, even though we're over a hundred years beyond that. I just want to make a sort of a, a, in, in parenthesis, I keep saying you know, the, they heard a calling, and I'm using that phrase intentionally. Um, there are two people I'll make brief references to, because it's just to give you context as to why I'm so obsessed with the, with the, with the hearing. Um, 
You know, many, many people ask about Abraham, the first person, maybe one of the first people that heard, um, you know, what, who is this guy? Why was he chosen? And there's a lovely Midrashic tradition that suggests that when God was calling, when God was talking, when God was making the rounds, or making himself present in all sorts of ways, um, many people, you know, many people may have heard the noise, uh, but there was one guy that listened, and, and that was Abraham, who said, Hineni, I'm ready to go on this journey, which is different to people, people around me. Abraham too heard a calling. Many of us sometimes see callings, but our responses are, come back next week. I haven't got time now. Or it's not going to work out. I, and Abraham, in any, I'm, I'm, I'm standing, I'm making a stance. Another person um, who I think plays um, with the theme of hearing uh, is somebody we met just last week. A guy called Yitro, Jethro. The portion that we read last week, so again, a very dramatic portion that deals with the giving of the Torah. Right? The, sort of, at the end of very, very dramatic events, the exodus of Egypt, the ten plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, we're wandering in, in the Sinai Desert for a while, get to Mount Sinai, the Torah is given, and what do we call that episode? Jethro. Ooh. Like, what, what's that all about? Give it a more dramatic title. How are people going to want to see the movie if it's called Jethro? We don't even know who he is. But the thing about Jethro, which I think is I find fascinating, the portion opens with two very important words. Vayishma, Yitro. Yitro heard. And the verse actually then explains what is it he heard. Everything that God had done to the children of Israel by taking them out of Egypt, by crossing the Red Sea. And then there's a fascinating question. Again, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but just so that I think it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. It's very curious. There's a fascinating question that's asked by maybe the classic commentator on the Torah, and the, also the Talmud as well, Rashi, who lived 10th, 11th century, when I was, in, in, um, when I was a, a little smaller, uh, in Cheder, I always had this thing. I, oh, I know, Rashi lived for 25 minutes. He lived from 10.40 to 11.05. But, but in that time, it was a little longer than 25 minutes, really uh, unbelievable the amount of literature and commentary that he has contributed that we, we still um, benefit from daily or weekly or whenever we look at it. So he asks a very interesting question, as he does, always. He asks, what is it that Jethro heard? And it's a curious question because you just have to read the rest of the passage. Like, I can answer that, and I'm not as smart as Rashi. Like, what, what's prompting the question? And a couple of years ago, I looked at the question again for the first time. I think part of the challenge of good studying is look at the text again for the first time. And it, it, essentially, what Rashi does, he's not just asking, what did he hear? He's asking, what is it that Jethro heard? that made him want to become a part of this people. Because that's what happened. Right? Jethro joins the Jewish people. He joins Moses, his son-in-law, and, and wants, to, wants to put his story, his lot, with the lot or with the story of the Jewish people. And that's a very different question. 
It's a very important question. For uh, this building, by the way, we may be interested in this question because Jethro, it turns out, is probably one of the first bored people in Jewish history. He's a layperson. He's not a professional. And he's a very smart layperson that advises Moses, forgive him and forgive me, to set up committees. You can't do this by yourself, he says. You've got to delegate. You've got to set up some committees. And the, the rest you know, becomes um, Jewish history, or Jewish committees, or Jewish decision makers, or the delegation of. But I'm, I'm making a point here about these people that heard because the story of Israel you're going to encounter in the north specifically, but I think everywhere in Israel, and the living people that you'll meet too, ask them, what are they hearing? What's the music playing in their ears? And how are they choosing to dance to that music? Some of them might turn the volume down. It's not my style. I don't like the rhythm. I don't like the beat. It's too fast, too slow. It doesn't quite do it. But all of the people you're going to meet, women and men, lots of women, heard a calling and responded in a way that has produced what you're going to be wandering around in uh, in a few months' time. So I'm going to leave you at the Kinneret, uh, and we're going to make our, our way to Benet. I've just dropped my glasses. There's someone over here. I'll find the way Oh, behind. Um, I want to now go, where did we say we were going to go next? We're going to visit briefly um, Haifa. We're then going to get to Tel Chai. How are we doing with time? Tell me if I'm... Uh, about 15 minutes. Five? 50 hours, oh, perfect. Okay. So I'm going to try and stop. Getting the same things that you need. I'm going to try and stop in about 10. And you know, if there's questions, I'll, I'll um, certainly welcome questions. So I want to go briefly. Haifa and then, and then Tel Chai. Haifa and Akko are two places in Israel that present what I would call <coughs> nostalgic, romantic, optimistic model, micro, of what does it mean when the Jewish people who were powerless have power, we move from being powerless to becoming powerful, and we move from being me'evel, those people that were outside of, to ruling over others that unfortunately are sometimes called Me'evel. You're the outsiders now. We're in. We made it. What does that mean? I and mean, again, we're not going to get into it. It's another footnote for you because it's a huge issue that we're not going to address fully, certainly now, not now. I, but how do I now behave as an alum, as an alumni of the Egyptian experience, which we speak about, some of us, three or four times a day. Once a week in our Kiddush. Once a year around our Seder table, whenever you do it. We remind ourselves that we too were slaves in Egypt. That needs to inform everything we do. Everything we do. But when we don't have much power, its influence is limited. What happens when the dream becomes a reality? Or for some, what happens when the dream becomes a nightmare? 
We've got to do this now. Lopashut. It's not easy. How do we treat minorities with the experience that's in our DNA of being a minority? You will see, I would want to argue, very optimistic models of how we can live together with people that are different to us. The Israeli citizens living in Haifa, living in Akko, living in many other areas, are not only Jews. They are Arabs, Muslims, Christians, Druze, Bedouin. I don't want to say you name them, they're Israeli citizens. Let's not go that wild. But many, many, many different flavors of the new Israeli, some of whom are Jewish, not all. And in that particular area, we really can and do live side by side. In Haifa particularly, recently in December, there are festivities around all of the festivals, core festivals of each of these religions. There is Santa Claus wandering around Haifa. Many people from Jerusalem will think, the Rebbe has come, but it's not the Rebbe. By the way, many people in Jerusalem will use those decorations for their sukkah because they've got no other association that these are sukkah decorations as opposed to Christmas decorations because they've never seen them out of that context. By the way, that's a vignette that's important to understand when you have a majority culture. Right? What becomes normal? What is my world of association when I see things for the first time and I've never seen them in the other context that maybe are more common? I, so Santa's wandering around Haifa. The Muslims have a very important festival also in December, and we have Hanukkah. And there are street festivals with thousands, thousands of people, not only from Haifa, by the way, who come to celebrate together. It's a very wonderful window, a halon, a window into, oh, not only what could be, but actually what is. Akko also in the north is very similar. There's a very large Arab population that lives in some of these cities in Yafo. You'll see it outside of Tel Aviv. And I would say for the most part, the coexistence, <coughs> the ideas of grappling with how do we share space and ideas in a way that maybe evokes the earlier arguments that I referenced of Hillel and Shammai, that I can live with multiple narratives. I can live with multiple stories. I can live, hopefully, with multiple approaches to how we live our lives in this era. And we make room for one another, and space for one another, and time for one another to make that a reality. So it's not a theoretical idea. It's celebrated and carried out and actualized on a daily basis. That's what you will encounter, hopefully, not hopefully, you will encounter it in Haifa. And in many of the villages, the kibbutzim, the Druze villages that also are dotted around, around the north, uh, you will meet a people who really are fascinating uh, and have always contributed front lines, both in army terms but in other aspects as well on the front lines of citizenship, what, the way we define citizenship, which in my mind too often is, is just about army, has to be also about army, but not just about army. 
It's only one of the ways that the Druze community uh, has excelled uh, is in their army service. They're very, very dedicated and very committed uh, to the people of Israel. The people of Israel have to be a little bit more dedicated and committed to the, the Jewish people, but in Yachasid, relatively speaking, we're in not a bad place. Certainly we could be better. Uh, and those are experiences that I want you to hold on to when you get into Jerusalem. And when you get into the areas where this coexistence, this success in sharing space, this success in sharing narratives and embracing the views of others, Needs a bit of work. That's an understatement for a British guy. Needs a bit of work. Right? But you will have the actualization of how this might work. We're not necessarily dealing with a Palestinian population in the north, but we're certainly, certainly dealing with a population that is not Jewish. And nationally, many of them define themselves as Palestinians, not part of the Jewish narrative of Zionism. Why should that speak to them? Right? But they're still living side by side. Right? Grapple that. Grapple with that and hopefully even embrace it and use it to understand what could be, what should be, what is, what isn't, where we're doing things right and where, where we're doing things less right, even wrong. Final place for now. For now. Tell Chai. So it's a little bit off the beaten track, but I love that place. Where again. is it? So Tel Chai is, is um, not far from Sfat, actually. It's south of Sfat. Um, it's well known in Israel for a couple of, one predominant reason, um, uh, but I'm going to speak more about the other reason. So Tel Chai is, is iconically related to a, a, a gentleman called Trumpeldorf, not the Labour Zionist camp. Right, Trumpeldorf was of the pre-Likud, pre-right ring, oh, that's wrong to define it like that because it was pre-state, but certainly his ideology very much influenced, and in conversation with Jabotinsky, if that name means anything, if it doesn't, it doesn't matter, uh, you'll, you'll have a chance to encounter it more. Uh, but a, a group of people, Trumpeldor, Jabotinsky, uh, were Jews that enlisted in other people's armies, because you don't have an army of our own yet, Right? But fighting as Jewish brigades, remember Bialik? We need to be, uh... we need to be involved, we need to be active. We can't run away, we'll run too. Right? By the way, the terminology is, is still um, very, very significant uh, in army training. Right? We're trained Kadima the Histair. It's quite a frightening phrase when you need to do it. And we all need to do it at some point. Right? You have to, like, Run! Like, really, run, run, run forward. Run forward into battle, not away from battle. And our iconic, again, officers right, in certain units, right, this terminology of achavai is also used. Uh, you'll meet some of those chavai, not just in cemeteries, thank God, but you'll also see them living. Right, this notion that officers run first. Right? It's a leadership quality and a new Jewish leadership quality that was developed maybe militarily but again, has roots much, much deeper in what our leadership, our leadership needs to be. What kind of responsibilities we take, how we lead by example, all, all of that stuff, that's important. And these leaders that you're going to, a particular leader in Tel Chai and other places, 
you know, are leaders <coughs> who led by example. So the Trumbledor is buried uh, in Tel Chai. There's a, a very um, lovely um, 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 sculpture of a lion um, that uh, speaks to the kind of character that, that Trumpledor wa uh, was. Uh, Trumpledor was serving, I believe, either in the Turkish or in the British army uh, when he was fatally wounded uh, and, and was killed in a battle. Um, uh, but the battle was occurred in Israel and it was an Arab revolt, uh, one of the Arab rebellions that also went up on up north. And um, as he was dying, so legend says, we have legends now that are about a hundred and something years old. Um, one of the things he said in his last breath, whether he did or not, it doesn't really matter, but that's what we believe, as is the case with a lot of legends. Um, he uses the following phraseology. He says, Tov lamut ba'ad al-seinu. It is good to die for our country. Tov lamut ba'ad al-seinu. So I want to give some parashanut on that, which is why I think it's important. I, I wanted to bring it. Tov lamut ba'ad al-seinu. And you know, the Rashi people among them, I can see it on some of your faces. Really? Really? Is that what we're educating our kids? Is that an ideal? And I think part of the answer is I hope not. But part of the answer is you have to see the context. Because Trumpeldor came from a generation where we were being killed simply for being Jewish. In, in pogroms and, and in, in outrageous events that occurred throughout our history. And Trumpeldor in his last breath realize that we're in a different place. It's not good to be killed for one's country, but if you're going to be killed for this cause, for what I was hearing, for what I decided to become involved in, that I was no longer passive, I was actively involved in this act, Tovlamut Kacha, it's better to die this way than the way we've been dying for too long um, in our thousands. And again, that kind of approach position very, very much influenced Menachem Begin that also you will meet either in the, um, in, in the museum, which is highly recommended, or in other places as well, part of the Israel narrative, right? The Irgun, right? The whole, you know, Machloket, that's an understatement, uh, the discussions that were going on pre-state as to how we deal with the Brits. Sorry. <laughs> Right? You know, the Ben-Gurion approach, the Edsel approach. If you know it, great. If you don't, doesn't matter. Should we be doing some other reading beforehand? Get some books. Do some reading. It's always good. Um, <laughs> that notion of taking one's destiny and embracing one's destiny and, and being in charge, that's a very, very important, iconic figure that, occur, that, that you'll find in Tel Chai. That, again, is part of the Matzpun the tzafon, part of the consciousness, the essence of the Israel story. Last vignette in Tel Chai. So there's a, um, a college in Tel Chai, a, not one of the Ivy Leagues, one of the many colleges that are being developed in the areas of Israel, and I referred to it earlier on, known as the periphery. Like, we're outside of. Like also, this dilemma and tension between who's in the center and who's outside the center. Right? Tel Chai is one of a number of colleges that are developing in the periphery, serving a fascinating population. I would say more than half of the students, but I wouldn't say, I know, 
More than half of the students studying in Tel Chai are not Jews. They're Israeli citizens who are not Jewish. Studying social work, they're studying sciences, there's the certain specialities that Tel Chai is now uh, becoming very well known for. Worth a visit just to see the population that's there. Um, really fascinating. But Tel Chai's story for me, and I've taken a number of groups there, uh, is compelling and curious for the following reasons. You meet the founders of the college, and you ask them, so what, what's your mandate? What is your calling? What are you doing? And they'll answer you the obvious. Oh, we provide degrees to our students. That's what we're supposed to do. They pay us fees. We provide them a service. The service is called a degree. They then go out to the workforce. Hakol Beseda. Everything would be fine. And as we say on Pesach, if that's all they did, we would say, Diana, what more do we want? But they don't just do that. They open their windows with a view dissimilar to that, they don't see the ocean quite from there, but it's beautifully green. And they say, where are we? Where are we situated in the Israel story and on the Israel landscape? So obviously they're situated in a place where the population is very, very multicultural and multifaceted, and certainly not homogeneous, very heterogeneous, and they're answering that call by the population they're serving. They also look out the window and say, we're very near an area called Kiryat Shmone. Kiryat Shmone, this is an awful term, but we still use it, <laughs> is um, a development town. It's a funny term to use, a development town. So when does the town become developed? It's a terminology we use, which has a kind of a, it's a technical idea, but be careful of the words you say. That's what we taught in Pirkei Avot. Careful of the words you use. Because sometimes they become self-fulfilling prophecies. You call an area the periphery, it will be the periphery. You call an area a development town, it will constantly see, it, see itself developing. But at what point am I developed? Do I have to wait 13 years? 30 years? 40 years? What? At what point? So the technicality of a development town, if it's below, I think, 45,000 um, citizens, 45,000 residents, it's known as a development town. It's still on its way to becoming a city. Kriyat Shimone. Again, a beautiful part of Israel uh, is right next door to Kiryat Shmone. This town, periphery, development, many of its residents are still suffering from socio-economic situations which are very challenging. Kids who aren't finishing schools, kids who are hungry, older people who don't necessarily get all the services that they need, um, and Tel Chai looks out the windows and says, we're just what does that mean for us as an educational, visionary institution? An institution that takes its mission very, very, very seriously. So it does a lot of projects, socially motivated, educationally motivated, with Kiyat Shimone next door. Uh, one of the nicest projects that I saw, and it's a tiny, tiny thing, but again, I'm getting to the very, very small to use it as a micro for what could be the very, very large. So one of the things that Tel Chai has to do, because it has thousands of students, is have cafeteria. What do you do here? I'm going to feed people. Who do I want to invite to work in that cafeteria? So the people who are working in the cafeteria, I think it's beautiful. It's, it's people in their 80s. I met a few who are in their 90s. People who may have been on the original kibbutzim in the area, but are kind of forgotten, because too often we forget the old. And we don't give them the honor and the space 
and the environment that enables them to tell their story. So guess what? Tel Chai invites older citizens who otherwise are sitting alone at home to work in the cafeteria and to argue with the students that having one sandwich isn't enough, you need to have two. <laughs> and is that all you're eating today? And this multi-generational conversation, which otherwise wouldn't necessarily take place, occurs. They come in voluntarily, they're there four or five hours a day. It makes their day, makes actually their life. And gives their life meaning once again. Because the multi-generational conversations that occur are the stories that I just told about Israel. Because these chevre have been around. So when we're asking ourselves the existential questions of lama, of why and for what, as very often we do in educational institutions, <coughs> having these lectures as well as those lectures, well, they're not, you can imagine they're more monologues than dialogues, with the altar, <laughs> with these guys that are telling people what they need to eat and what they need to think, and why are you wearing that, and your trousers are torn, and all the things you can imagine and more. Um, that's an educational moment par excellence. Those are educational moments par excellence. So my final comment, and then I'll open it um, for questions. Um, that moment in Tel Chai, for me, resonates with a beautiful, beautiful poem, uh, Yehuda Amichai, called Tourists. There's two stanzas. I want to relate to the second stanza, where it occurs in Jerusalem. Yehuda Amichai was the poet. Oh, what a beautiful, beautiful poems, and, and one of the most well-known po poets, particularly of Jerusalem, but, but certainly of Israel. Read him, please, before you go. In this poem, he plays out the following scene. There's a moradere who speaks uh, with a bit of a lift. His English not so good, but he's trying. And he's working with a group of tourists, and he's standing beneath the Jaffa Gate in Jerusalem. He points to the wall. He says, do you see that? symbol in the wall. It looks a little bit like a menorah. It's over 2,000 years old. It's wonderful. And Yehuda Amichai, the poet, says, please, Moradur, please, guide, don't focus on the wall. Move your focus to the person underneath that symbol who has just gone shopping and is on his way home to make Shabbat with his family in contemporary Jerusalem in Israel. Try and have those meetings with the people as well as the stones. Try and encounter the older generation in Tel Chai and listen really hard to their stories. Their stories speak to the institution of Tel Chai, but also they speak to the Israel stories, the many, many narratives that you will be exposed to. So I want to wish you, those who are going, um, a wonderful and compelling trip. I know it will be. And those who aren't going, continue your journeys here and your touring here and your encounters here by reading, writing, thinking, um, and being in conversation with those that are there and, and those that maybe are on their way there. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you.